There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia swallowed through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. This is episode number 45. Hello, I'm Georgia. I recently joined the show to bring you stories from the Sydney area. My background is in engineering, and I'm driven by curiosity for the world and its complexity, especially in this special time in humanity's history. Leadership, the true seat of power, technology, and regenerative agriculture are all topics I delve into. So look out for stories on the people who are helping to solve some of the most perplexing problems of our time. I was first introduced to Gretchen Miller through the Climactic podcast, and it's been a fantastic time getting to know her and understanding some of the amazing projects that she's worked on in her career. She spent most of her career working with ABC Radio National and has produced a huge amount of incredibly moving content. She's now working on a PhD, which you're going to hear a lot about in this interview. The title for the PhD is The Power of Podcasting to Help Environmental Movements Communicate Their Message. Nothing could be more poignant for my first ever interview, and I'm really thrilled to be sharing this discussion and this conversation with you. Hi, my name is Georgia Shiel. I'm here in Sydney doing my first interview with the Climactic Podcast. I'm very excited to be in Gretchen Miller's lounge room today, talking to uh, Gretchen Miller, who's a presenter, interviewer and documentary producer. She's worked with the ABC Radio National for 20 years and has an extensive portfolio of over 70 documentary series covering topics from public health all the way through to forest conservation. She's very guided by her passion for environment and science communication and is working on a collaborative PhD project with UNSW and Landcare, which I'm really excited to talk to her about. I'd also like to say at the start that Climactic is really lucky to have Gretchen on board as a trusted advisor and mentor, which has been fun for the gang all the way through to the start. But I'm lucky that I live in Sydney and I get to actually meet Gretchen face to face whenever I, not, I want to. So very grateful for that as well. My pleasure. So I'd like to start by, you've worked in storytelling almost your whole life. So I'd love to understand what that means to you and where you think the role of storytelling plays in society. Storytelling is one of those terms that has become really kind of fashionable just in the last few years. But I guess humans have a very long history of storytelling. And when I was a kid, my parents introduced me to myths and legends of well, most well I, I was really drawn to the ancient Greeks but I also read American Indian myths and stories and I read Australian indigenous myths and stories even though we were actually living in London at the time and so I guess 
those stories, oh, and of course it was very much pre-internet and there just wasn't the distraction around of the latest video game or <laughs> I'm going to embarrass myself here. I don't even think they're called video games anymore. Anyway, we just didn't have quite so much distraction. And I read 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 a lot of stories. So I loved stories. They just became a part of my lifeblood. When I did my undergraduate degree, I did music composition. But again, what I was really drawn to was what's called music theatre. And that's not musical theatre. It was a much more experimental avant-garde form. And I guess it was the words in that which attracted me to it. And then I, I wondered what I could do with this pretty useless degree, really. I mean, when I say that ironically, because it was an extraordinary degree, but it didn't prepare me well for a real job. And I was interested in the environment and I volunteered there. And then I met a guy who said, look, I'm, I'm starting out at the Sydney Morning Herald. You'd be a great journalist now. I really wasn't great material as a journalist, but <laughs> I was really shy. I was really esoteric. I was really fanciful. But anyway, it was an opportunity to do some work and I latched onto it with quite a lot of determination. And I guess there I learned to tell stories in that really short form. You had three to 500 words often, which really isn't much. And I got hooked at that point. But I always thought that radio would be a good fit for me because the spoken word really and managed to get an arts grant that got me in the door at the ABC and then I just kept my foot in that door and basically refused to leave. And that was kind of 20 years of work then in various places. And storytelling, yeah, it's become a really fashionable term, but I guess it's what journalists do. And I was really into features, which is quite lateral storytelling. So it's a lot of, it's a combination of not just interview and real oral history or oral stories, but also readings and quotes from literature and real mix of different genres. And it was just absolutely enticing way to get a story across using not just the spoken word but the sounds of environment the sounds of place and all these different elements which might be science or philosophy or literature or previous research or history and you would bang all these things together with lived experience and come up with a quite you had the opportunity to come up with quite intoxicating ways of storytelling quite complex ways of storytelling that's a long answer sorry <laughs> Not at all. I think intoxicating ways of telling stories would have to be the best description for the work of yours I've listened to thus far. I think the, especially the silent forest and trees I've loved are just miracles. They're beautiful, beautiful pieces of storytelling, very honest and true. In a lot of those cases, especially in the silent forest, it sort of struck me more as investigative journalism, but with soul. Do you explain it that way or how would you explain that project? Yeah, The Silent Forest really was, is probably the straightest piece of work, major work that I've done. It was, I often call things radio features as a way of explaining the form that I work in, but it really was a work of documentary because it had to be for the BBC. So I guess in some ways the poetry had to be diminished in some way. But yeah, again, the idea of that project, four stories about four different areas of environmental struggle in Southeast Asia, 
where I wanted to find local communities, not NGOs, international NGOs. I wanted to find local communities that were pushing back against environmental threat. And I wanted to hear their stories about how they were doing it and how their work sat culturally. So it was a four-part series. We went to Thailand to look at the rosewood. We went to Vietnam to look at the pangolin. We illegally crossed the border into Burma, into Myanmar, to talk to the Karen rebels who want to set aside thousands of hectares of forest, which has been actually protected by war. And what was the other one? Oh, yeah, Indonesia, where the forests are literally silent because the country's cultural passion for birds means that birds are captured out of the forests and put in cages in people's homes. They compete in birdsong competitions. But, yes, the forests are quite literally silent. The birds are all gone. And there are groups of people trying to push back against that poaching which goes on, which has its roots in poverty, basically. It's not big evil poachers doing it. It's lots and lots of little guys who just use it to supplement their income. But, yeah, it was a, it was a more straight kind of storytelling, I think, not quite as kind of philosophical or sociological or, yeah, psychological as I like to usually do, but it was uh, such an adventure. Yeah, I was very lucky. And now to hear one of the pieces that truly moved me from Silent Forest, one of Gretchen's most recent pieces. But the human misery of conflict made it too dangerous even for armed poachers. And so, perversely, large areas of rainforest were preserved, in which many animals and Karen people still live. So let's slip now, unobserved, beneath the noisy canopy. Uh, along our, our travel here, you will see many, many plants, like a mixed cropping. Mixed cropping. Bitterness trees, banana, pineapple, bitterness leaves. They are not doing for the business, just for the family eat, yeah. But these trees here are banana. Banana, yeah. Yeah. And pineapple. What they need to eat, they take it. Yeah. They don't collect, you know, a lot. This world is alive with sound and with water. It's busy. On the way to the village, we stop to look around the forest, which is in fact a produce garden and a temple to the Karen. And what was your philosophy behind Trees I've Loved? Because it was the way I see you went out to Australians and asked them for their stories on the trees that they've loved. And what was your philosophy behind that? What were you trying to achieve through that project? What I, it's a good question. The Trees I've Loved project came out of, it was part of a series of works that were what I now call citizen storytelling and went by the uglier term of user-generated content when we first started. There was a beautiful experimental website that was set up at the ABC under the radar for ABC listeners to get together and share their work, writing, photography, audio, it was an extraordinary site and I really was inspired by this idea to create a project where I would ask a question, a provocation, and from the content that then came in from our audience, because I had, was lucky I had access to the ABC audience, I would do an exploration of the meaning of trees in our lives. 
And what I wanted to do was we constantly hear about deforestation, land clearing in this country, deforestation in the Amazon. I wanted people to think about trees. So I wanted to address massive global issues, human archetypes really of our unease with the wild. But I wanted to do it through asking people for their very personal stories. So the story, the question I devised, and you've got to take some time to think about these questions but and what they are and what you hope to achieve with them. So you've got to frame them quite carefully. And the question I asked was, tell me about a tree that you have loved or lost. And it's a question about archetypes. It's a question about that relationship we have with nature, but a very specific relationship, not Tell me about how you feel about nature, but tell me about a tree, a a particular tree that you have loved or lost or loved and lost. And people really responded to that question. But the, the idea was, was that in thinking about this one tree that you have had a relationship with, you might then step up to protect the trees on the in the little park nearby and you might then step up to protect the trees of the nearest national park or you might then step up and care about the trees in in a Tasmanian forest or a forest in a state far from where you are or you might step up to protect the trees of the Amazon because the idea of the project was to remind you that we have a relationship with the forest we have a very personal relationship with the forest and to remember the way that tree moved and smelt and felt under your hands, what happened around you and what that tree meant during a particular time. I wanted to trigger people to remember trees, to not forget them. So that was the philosophy behind it. Yeah. Now one of my favourite excerpts from Trees I've Loved. (laughs) The children in the tree, hidden by leaves, their quick, quiet eyes follow you. And you might never know, but for a sensation on the back of your neck, which tells you you're not alone. One of those children was once you, and there's a part of you always up in that tree, looking down, mystified by the adult world, but powerful in your invisibility. You know your territory, not by the streets and shops and houses, but by the trees, the markings on the bark at eye level, the climbability of the boughs above. And you never fully forget this, as you pass from the whispering leafy world to the sharp-cornered one of the grown-ups. There's always a sense of mystery when you enter into a forest, but that mystery is itself mysterious. It's not immediately obvious, at least to me, why this seems to be such a recurrent and universal sensation. And it actually is another world. The uh, French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss authored a book, a famous book called Triste Tropique, about his voyages and his trip to Brazil and his experiences there in the Amazon forest. And he says in that book, a few dozen yards of forests are enough to abolish the external world. One universe gives way to another, which is less flattering to the eye, but where hearing and smell 
faculties closer to the soul than sight come into their own. And I think that contains the beginning of an answer to this sense of mystery. If anyone hasn't listened to that, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. And it actually brings me to, very funnily, your PhD subject in many ways, which is, as I've got it down, the power of podcast or communication, conversation, to help environmental movements communicate their message, which feels really urgent at this point in time. Where I'm sitting, we've had the facts for longer than I've been on this earth. So where do you see, I guess, storytelling in this particular PhD project come in and try and bridge that gap between science and action? Okay, look, it's a, a sort of a conflictual thing for me because I what I want to do is run around screaming and shouting and yelling at people and shaking people and saying, wake up, wake up, do something quick, 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 you know. And I write plenty of letters to politicians begging them to move. But I think we've got a bigger, another problem. There's not just one problem. There's not just one way of communicating. There's lots of effective ways of communicating. We have plenty of NGOs campaigning. We've got plenty of NGOs raising money and asking for signatures and letters and and so forth. So there's that, but there's a whole bunch of people who are maybe not being convinced about the arguments. And again, it comes down to that relationship between the individual and larger action, democratic action, really. So again, what I'm trying to do is convince others in a non-political way, although I'm deeply political, I think politics is such a divisive, awful environment at the moment. It's not rational or it's, it's just emotional and it's awful. So rather than engage people in arguments, I want to remind them again of their relationship with the world. And the thing about stories is that they have the power to move us and if we tell stories from a personal perspective, this is my idea. And in fact, I'm probably not going to be able to prove this in the PhD, but I guess it's the underlying thinking that if you read a story and you go, and regardless of your political orientation, you think, oh, I remember when I did something like that, or I remember, or I, I want, I feel helpless, but I want to do something. This person's story is giving me some ideas this person's struggle with their own not knowing what to do or how to do something shows me that I too can take on that almost insurmountable problem and start making my own effort. And when I make my own effort in my local area, whether it's to take part in a replanting or rescue a wombat or look after a, a native bird that's that's been orphaned, once I reconnect in that way, then I might also start connecting that relationship with the way that I vote. <laughs> it's as simple as that. So the theme of the PhD, and there's a website, a storytelling website, which is open to the public to participate in, and it's called The Rescue Project. And if you Google rescue and land care, who's my partner in this project, my practical partner in it, because they give me access to both building the website but also their stakeholders, their, their membership. If you Google Land Care and Rescue, you'll find a storytelling webpage where people are asked 
when you rescue something, a river bank by cleaning it up, a a wombat by taking it in or a possum or a kangaroo joey, or if you pick up rubbish as you walk along the beach and you pick up plastic and if you care for a particular location over time or you fight the council about cutting down of a tree, these are all acts of rescue. But my question is, firstly, what do you do? But secondly, how do you feel when you put your fingers into the soil and you plant a tree and another tree and another tree and you come back and you care for that land or as you wake up every two hours to feed the kangaroo joey, as you look into the eyes of the uh, kestrel that you've, you've brought back to life or the goshawk or the southern petrel, there's a beautiful story there. There's stories from bat carers and all sorts of people. There's stories about people who come to a park to have a picnic and find it full of rubbish and take 20 minutes to clean it up. These are all acts of rescue. But how do you feel when you do this? How in some way does it rescue you? And I think in the bigger picture, in rescuing the planet, we also rescue ourselves. We rescue the human race, but we rescue ourselves on a psychological, spiritual, if you must, level. Yeah. The connection we've um, not lost, it's just dulled down by the busyness perhaps of life and just the craziness of what's going on with decision makers and we're just not sure where we fit in at all, but we are so intrinsically part of it. Mm. And I think that's a, especially for people who live in the city, can be hard to, to rescue that part of you. Now it's time for Climactic Community Corner, where we play voice messages sent to us on Facebook. We're opening up this space for the community to share events, news, thoughts, feelings, all sorts. If you've got a message to share, just send it to us at Climactic Show on Facebook or hello at climactic.fm. Hi, Climactic listeners. It's Kat, the co-founder of Trash Bags on Tour. Just letting you all know that if you're free Sunday the 3rd of March and want to get involved in Clean Up Australia Day, come on board Trash Bags on Tour down to the Great Ocean Road. Uh, We will be cleaning and collaborating with the Great Ocean Road Coastal Committee and going to a beautiful beach at Point Road Night uh, from 9 until 10.30 a.m. Afterwards, you'll be educated with some zero-waste tips and we have a beautiful tourism day combined with education and conservation for you on that day. Tickets are available via Trash Bags on Tour Facebook events link. Uh, We hope to see you there. Cheers, guys. Bye. Hi, my name is Adrian Whitehead. In 2012, I formed a new political party called Save the Planet party's number one goal is to implement the urgent action needed to reverse global warming and to avoid the coming climate crisis. Our campaigning has already led to over 350 councils around the world declaring that we're in a climate emergency and committing to emergency action. This represents over 28 million people. In 2019, we're wanting to contest the federal election under a new name, One Planet, and need 100 more members to register the party. So if you can vote in Australia and want to support urgent action on global warming, please head to the website www voteplanet.net and fill in the form on the membership tab. We're also waiving the $5 membership fee for people who join by Wednesday the 6th of March. So here it is again, www.voteplanet.net. Please register as a member and help save the planet. 
definitely had a lot of people that have put their stories forward. Which one of the, I'd love listeners to be able to hear one that you feel quite close to. Okay, so there's nothing to hear yet. The stages of the project are the call out and the website being built, which we did last year. And then I will be making a podcast from the stories and asking some of the people to read their stories for me and just record them on their phones because thankfully phone technology is so fabulous now that it's possible to get quite nice recordings that way. And then I will set those stories to sound. I have a really extensive collection of sounds that I've made over the years. So from all all areas of Australia, and I might may well ask some of the contributors to make recordings for me as well. And then we'll release them as a podcast on Climactic, but in other places as well. So you can't hear them yet, but you can certainly go and read them. And I can guarantee that with one or two of them, you'll need a tissue. There's the story of Dodo, the Southern Petrel. I think I've got his name. I mean, his name is Dodo, but I'm not sure if I've got the right breed of bird. But anyway, he looks like an albatross, but he's not an albatross. So there's the story of Dodo. There's also Rue Tales, an ex- extraordinary story from a writer called Smithy who lives near Wagga, as a farmer near Wagga, and he's been a part of a couple of my projects, the Trees Project as well, and he writes the most moving, nuanced stories you, you've ever read. They're literally only sort of five to 600 words, so it's a very quick read, but, um, yeah, bring tissues. There's lots of stories there that are extraordinary. There's about 40 in all. So scan and see which ones grab your interest and feel free to leave a comment, engage with the writers because that's really positive feedback that all the writers have contributed without a fee. They just contribute because they want to tell their stories. So it's a really lovely reward to have somebody read it and then say, yeah, thanks, you know, or ask a question that's, it's designed for that level of engagement and sharing. And then do consider what you've done and write a story as well, because it'd be most welcome. You don't have to be a land carer. It doesn't have to be a grand gesture. It can be something as simple as always picking up the rubbish or even just taking care of a tree or talking to a tree as you as you visit it each day. <laughs> There's all kinds. It's a very loose definition of rescue. But if you want to reflect on your connection to a place or, an, or a thing or a creature, please feel free to do so. Yeah, you'd be most welcome. And do you have a story that you've contributed? <laughs> I haven't contributed a story. I haven't contributed a story because it's not about me, actually. And what my contribution is, is nurturing and mothering this project along. And then I guess my story will be in the way I write the PhD. And there will also be, as part of the podcast series, a documentary or a feature about a particular site of land care where a community has come together to do great work and a story, a deeper story about that, sort of a more detailed story, a longer story. So that will be where I get to say what I think. But I think, yeah, my story is all through it, really. My story is all through it. But I don't I don't want to talk about myself. <laughs> I imagine, though, you're quite a tenacious lady. So I imagine that you um, probably do have a tree you speak to or have a particular place that you care for. If you were to write a story, do you have one that comes to mind? I love my little garden, which is a tiny inner city patch of bush that I've 
has had several iterations over the years that I've been here. I've been here 25 years. So that little tiny patch of dirt, which must be maybe three metres by 2.5, it hosts two trees, a number of smaller shrubs, flannel flowers, ferns, and I do love my garden and the place that it is and there's a particular tree in it that it's actually a hybrid, which I'm not mad on because they're intrinsically barren, but each year it's covered in huge orange flowers, it's gum, and the birds come to it and I talk to the birds when they arrive. There's like three pairs that always come. And there is a tree that I talk to on my daily run down at Sydney Park or my, it should be daily, but it's not, maybe three or four times a week I get down there. And it's a delicate little tree, which I've been communicating with now for about a year. It's just a little comfort because I had a bit of personal stuff going on with my child and I was terribly worried for him. And so to sort of help calm myself, I would chat to this tree and just notice it. Really, I just noticed it. And let me tell you, that tree has rescued me in a way. So I just notice when it gets new growth and I talk to it when it hasn't rained for months and I celebrate the, the buds as they start to appear. It's a wattle and uh, it's, it's nothing fancy, but I'm quite fond of that little tree. Yeah. It was actually a friend of mine who, when I was 12, she's one of my oldest friends and I met her and we lived together for two years 12 to 14, lived in the same suburb, and then I moved, and we've not lived together since, but it's been, what, 38 years or so of friendship. And she said to me that if I gave the tree in my front garden a hug, I would come back. (laughs) And I've never forgotten that. Um, I didn't come back to Perth except to visit, but it was just that idea of a tree being a part of a place. Yeah, and she was the one who first introduced me to the that time they had a farm in York, a small farm, and we would go up and walk amongst the granite rock country and, gosh, it was poetry in motion to me, that kind of country, so beautiful. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, so, I don't know, trees, people, places. <laughs> Sounds like that's the inspiration for a lot of the work you've done, mm. really. And you've got quite a strong theme, obviously, of talking about the environment or rather letting others talk about the environment in a lot of ways, being the person there to witness that discussion and craft it, which is beautiful work. But another part of the work that you do is science communication. And I find that really interesting. And I know we've touched on it in some parts, but I know that our listeners will really want to get your thoughts on potentially how storytelling can help people come to terms with climate change and actually enact and create an impact on them to the point where they act from there. Mm. The science communication that I've done so far as a freelancer, and I've only been freelance for a year, so this is a, a, a growing space for me, I think, and it's strange that it has come to me. It's been health communication. So there's been a podcast called Prevention Works, which I did, which is really very targeted at policymakers and people, researchers in that space. So it's a small audience 
but I guess I do the interviews in a way that's a lot more general as if I was on a daily radio show, like a, a good one, like Life Matters, I guess is my model, where I'm really just asking, or the science show, where I'm really just asking the scientists what's behind their work and why they do it and what their passion is and what drives the research. Because so often science research, you only, you read about it in dry research papers and there's no sense of the humans behind it. And quite often the social meaning, the, the value of the work is hidden in the detail. But these interviews, these conversations are around revealing the value of that work to the broader population. Yeah, so that's what I've been doing. I did one, well, I guess it was social science for HCF called Navigating Parenthood. And that took a, a case study, a, a person with a, a real story to tell, whether it's what it's like to have twins and have them in the neonative intensive care unit for a hundred days. That there's more about the psychology of the, of the experience of parenthood on parents, less about the children, more about the experience of parenthood. But with each of those case studies, with each of those people, we had an expert sit in, whether that was an anthropologist or a sociologist or a psychologist to kind of paint a broader picture. So that was a really interesting project. And the other science, I'm, I'm about to do some training in podcasting for the New South Wales Cancer Institute. They want to make their own podcast, talk about their research. So I'm going to do some training with them. And that might uh, quite possibly be uh, hands-on training as well, where I'll make a podcast, but they'll get to sit in on the process. And I've also trained scientists at the Royal Botanic Gardens who are doing research into when an area of country is replanted and regenerated and restored, they're doing a research to refine the kinds of plants that are available for particular areas so they're more suited to the area and are more likely to grow because quite often land restored from mining will just use the same five species and it's not going to take off. So that research, it was training in how to communicate their research, again, in a more human and accessible way and to teach them how not to be put off by those kinds of conversations which are more personal because they really have, those conversations have a lot of impact in terms of fundraising, actually. If you, if you can speak about your research in a way that makes sense to a rich layperson <laughs> or a rich policymaker or a funding body, then they're more likely to fund you because they, see, the art of the story is that it speaks to the listener and the listener develops empathy and, and ownership of that story, a feeling of a resonance with the story. So that's why storytelling is so powerful because if you hear the human voice talking about their work, your body is almost evolved to respond emotionally to the spoken word or the quality of the voice, the grain of the voice, uh, you know, these sorts of sounds or the those sounds, they all come across in, a, in an interview or a conversation or an exploration and they're not captured by the word on the page and we respond to them. We respond to hesitancy and speed of speech and intonation and pitch, all of those things. So that's why I think podcasting is a really powerful means of science communication because it breaks down that barrier of expertise versus lay and brings us to a place where we can share an understanding. Yeah. 
So you said previously that you wish you could run around the streets and shake people, especially policymakers, and get them to come on board and, and listen. And your preferred medium is clearly storytelling and especially creating space for others to tell their story, which is doesn't happen as much as it could or should in this world. But considering this is you being interviewed, how do you, I guess, control those thoughts? And if you, what would you be saying if you felt you could? I don't control them very well. I have written myself, my New Year's resolution was to stop getting into fights online <laughs> with climate deniers and trolls because I don't know how it happens. I am quite feisty and people say some really stupid things and they say some mean things as well and I will step up and have that argument. But I've recently come to finally the resolution that actually it's a waste of time. It is a total waste of time. These people are rusted on. If they're not actually paid sock puppets, astroturfers, because that is a big thing to just plant people in the community to waste all our energy on arguing the toss with somebody who's pretending to represent a large section of the community, but actually they don't. We know that because the polls tell us that most people in this country are concerned with climate change. So instead of getting into fights with people, I've actually decided that a far better thing to do is to form alliances with people who are acting and doing something. And, you know, Climactic is one of those meeting up with young, talented, thinking people like yourself who I can maybe help in some way, even if it's just by sharing of information or equipment or whatever, that is a far better use of my time. Writing to my local politicians, yeah, I think that's important and a democratic act. So I do do that. But for myself, yeah, I'm trying to practice what I preach and remember my own to do things that make me feel better, even if they're just a drop in the ocean. So I'm a part of an organization called Share Waste, where, and I was an early adopter of that because I have a native garden. So our food waste, my native garden doesn't want to. It's, <laughs> it likes abused soil, not rich soil. So when I heard about Share Waste, I jumped on board because so what I do is I walk our little compost bin down 10 minutes down the road to a woman in the area who does want my compost. And so I've been doing that for two or three years now. And I do small acts like that to salve and comfort myself. I do this research. I try to support Climactic in the small ways that I can. I am constantly connecting with people who are doing interesting work and encouraging them or helping them in any way I can and accepting help in return as well. So that's the only way. It's the only way because otherwise you burn out and you freak out. One of the projects I did was called Climate of Emotion. It was a two-part documentary because I was always in all my programs asking my interviewees how they felt about the burden of knowledge. Any experts that I spoke with, I, I asked them, how do you feel when you walk? Everywhere you walk, you can see signs of our climate changing, of environmental degradation. You have an intimate scientific understanding of it. How do you cope with that overwhelming flood of feedback that tells us how bad things are and so I did a in the end I did a two-part project uh, documentary that just asked that question of scientists and I think they all varying states of despair said that they could only do what they can do but they do something so you know for me I'm 50 I feel like I have maybe 
10 years where somebody will want to employ me left because we're quite an ageist community. <laughs> um, I, if I go, if I'm lucky, I've got another 10 years of work left and I don't want to waste it. So I'm doing this research and I'm trying to tell stories and just play an active part. That's all that I can do. Yeah. And it is, it's slow, steady work where you have to constantly nurture yourself by keeping your own relationships with the environment present, but shouting and screaming in the end disconnects you and locks you inside your own head. And what you really want to do is be looking out all the time and looking around you and engaging all the time and just slowly and gently just keep doing it. Yeah. There's a, a law, a Little's law, it's a physics law that says that when things are small, they move faster. And it definitely applies to this work, the work of acting on climate change, because it feels mountainous. It feels too big to break down into its small parts, but we have to, as, a, as people on this planet, we have to break it down into its small, seemingly insignificant acts of kindness. But otherwise you can't move closer to the goal can't get anywhere. So small, small pieces move faster. And there's also a, a Japanese word. Have you heard of the word Kaizen? No. Kaizen is basically a similar philosophy that the Japanese hold. Um, we all know that the Japanese work more than anyone in the world, but it's still a good philosophy, which is that every day in small ways do better than what you did yesterday, and which I think is also pertinent and pretty much speaks to a lot of what you were talking about but I'm 26 now. It's probably taken me the best part of the last 12 months to unpack this feeling that I have to do it all and it's urgent and that I must sort of hold the world on my shoulders. But by joining this podcast, by meeting people like you and, and talking it through, it's important to just acknowledge that these little acts are also important. You know, they make a difference in the long haul, but it is hard. Yeah. I hope they make a difference. I don't feel terribly optimistic, to be honest. I really don't. I feel really pessimistic. But things are changing and maybe they'll change quickly and you can't put your head in the sand in the end. I'm really heartened by the rise of independents in our political system who are challenging the rusted-on old bastards who really have us to the wall. I'm thinking of Tony Abbott's electorate. I hope, I don't know, I think if there's not change in some of those places, it's going to be devastating. But if there is, oh, the hope, oh, the hope. <laughs> I mean, you know, I should have learned by now to forget about politics. I think that democracy is one of the levers that we can use to ensure that we all that our voice is heard and that we can all continue to have a role to play. But if we lose out this election, there's always the next. And meanwhile, people like you and I form alliances and do work and just keep one foot in front of the other. It's, it's okay. It's something. And, yeah, and bearing witness I think is another important aspect to being a person in this milieu is just remember to bear witness and, and feel joy in what remains around you. Yeah. Where do you get the most joy? Location. 
Oh, look, you know, there's many places. I used to get deep joy from being out in the middle of Australia in places like Coongee Lakes. I would dearly love to go back there. The Darling River. I love the coast. Any, I, I can take joy in the arrival of a bird in the tree of my very urban backyard. But deep breaths need to be taken out of the city. But hey, you know, I get joy going to London and Paris. <laughs> I get joy there too. So I don't know. Just remember joy, that's all. <laughs> Make sure that you have some. We have a bit of a game in this house where I say three good things to my husband and my kid. And, you know, we have to just say three good things in the day. And, uh, you know, um, it's kind of daggy and old school, but maybe it's useful. It works. <laughs> Acts of gratitude and acknowledging them when they come yes. and not letting them pass you by. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you and thank you so much for letting myself into your home. This is for the second time and meeting your young boys has been really special for me as well. And the fact that you live around the corner for me gives me a lot of joy. So thank <laughs> you very much for everything and really appreciate everything that you've said today. Likewise, it's a pleasure to meet you, Georgia, and I know you're going to go far and do well. So fantastic. <laughs> we'll see you again soon. <laughs> no doubt. Thank you. You've been listening to Climactic, a podcast from the Climactic Collective, a group of storytellers dedicated to sharing inspiring, powerful stories from the climate change community. If you've got a story you'd like to tell and you'd like us to help you share it, just get in touch at hello at climactic.fm or on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Climactic Show. If you enjoyed this program, please tell a friend. Independent shows like ours need the help of our listeners to grow. And if you had the time to leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, we'd greatly appreciate it. The Climactic Collective is Mark Spencer, Rich Bowden, Maxine Baisley, Georgia Scheel, and Bronwyn Gresham. Our producer is Hazel Fidicaro. Thanks for listening, have a great day, and we'll be back with another story next week. The Climactic Collective. Collective.